Hi, this is Saqib Rahman from the OrthoClips podcast series. And today I'm with our guest, Dr. Zishan Sardar, MD. Uh, he is a spine and scoliosis surgeon and assistant professor of orthopedic surgery and neurological surgery at the uh, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and uh, attending at the Ox Spine Hospital at New York Presbyterian. And we're going to be talking about adult spine deformity, decision-making. Uh, thanks, Zishan, for being with me. Well, thank you very much, Saqib, uh, for inviting me for this podcast. Great. Well, um, why don't you maybe first start off, tell me how you got interested in the field, um, what uh, got you excited about this, uh, and drove you to kind of focus your practice uh, in this field? Sure. Uh, well, I think my interest actually really started during residency. Um, I was doing my orthopedic residency back in, in Canada. Uh, and as a resident, you kind of like most of the things that you're, uh, you're coming across. But what I realized was that um, when I saw patients with spinal deformity, I really felt that there was a, uh, a huge uh, gap uh, in the treatment of those patients. Uh, um, I think uh, overall, it felt as if uh, in the general public and uh, in the physician community as well, there was not as much awareness of uh, spinal deformity. And then because of that, there probably wasn't as much of a timely treatment of this as well. So that kind of piqued my uh, interest in the beginning. Um, and then uh, while during my residency as well, uh, just operating uh, on these cases, treating these cases, seeing these patients in the clinic, seeing how they did prior to surgery and, and how uh, their life was changed after the surgery. That's what really got me interested in it. And I wanted to uh, really contribute to a field um, that uh, needed a, a, a lot of, uh, I guess, raising awareness and help. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how I got interested in it to begin with. Okay, great. Very interesting. Um, so about adult spinal deformity, um, who gets it? Who gets it? How do they present? Maybe um, you can share some classic clinical presentations of uh, patients who come to see you for this. Yeah, so it's actually very common. Uh, I think more common than most people think. Uh, depending on how you look at it, uh, if we look at just people who have scoliosis of more than about 10 degrees, uh, patients over the age of 50 uh, the prevalence of this is close to 68%. And then if you, if you look at only patients who have a scoliosis of more than 20 degrees, the prevalence is still more than about 24% or so. Um, the general concept for a long period of time had been that spinal deformity is scoliosis. And obviously with time, we know that that's not true. Um, the, the deformity can exist in the coronal plane, which is obviously scoliosis, which is what in the adolescent groups is most talked about. But especially in the adults, the sagittal plane and the axial plane comes in and becomes very important. So it's a deformity that exists in multiple planes. Uh, I divide it into four main categories when I see a patient. You know, the first category that I see uh, are patients who are, who are young patients in their 20s to 40s. Uh, these are patients who likely had scoliosis in their adolescence uh, who were probably either not treated or were treated and are not coming in because of a different reason. Um, and usually these people will come in uh, in their 20s, 30s, 40s because now even though in the beginning they were asymptomatic, now they're starting to see that the deformity is getting worse or the position of their chest and back 
the deformity is worsening there. Um, rarely they even start to feel problems uh, breathing uh, or they'll come in because now they're starting to have pain when they did not have at the beginning. Um, so those type of things, and especially in the female population, there are concerns about well, what does this mean for me in the future? Can I still have uh, normal uh, pregnancies, those type of things. So that's how you know, this first category typically presents. And this one is more prevalent in females compared to males. Uh, the second category, which is probably the most common one that we see in the adult population, is the degenerative type of scoliosis. And these are people who will present in their 50s to 70s. Uh, and usually these are people who come in uh, who have had a pretty good functional life and now they're starting to have a lot of back pain or leg pain to the extent that it's, it's interfering with their day-to-day -day life and function. And even people who have retired, they'll come in because now they can't go golfing or they can't do the, uh, the uh, you know, usual things that they want to do to be able to have an enjoyable life. So that's, this is what we see commonly. These people are less concerned about the, you know, what, what the scoliosis looks like. They just want to be functional and get back to how they used to be. And then the third most common one, which I think hopefully we'll start to see less and less of, uh, is iatrogenic. And what that means is, uh, is that these are the patients who have had surgery uh, before, uh, and, and as a result of surgery, now have a deformity. And most commonly, this deformity is in the sagittal plane. So these patients uh, find it difficult to stand up completely straight. Uh, they'll walk with a stoop forward posture. They either have to use a cane or a walker because they really can't stand up. And those who don't use these uh, try to bend their knees or hips to try to compensate from that. And as you can imagine, if you walk even 10 feet with your hips and knees bent, you're going to be fatigued. You're going to have leg pain. You're going to have poor function. Uh, so that's why the, this, the, this third category presents. Uh, but I think hopefully with, uh, with more awareness and education, then that will go down. And the fourth category is where everyone else falls into. And that can be you know, anything such as um, people who have a deformity because they had a trauma or infection or tumor or other syndromes uh, or even uh, late presentation of congenital deformities. So that's, in my mind, that's how I divide them. And that's, you know, the typical presentation of these few different groups. Great stuff. So the four different uh, major groups, I guess, you can um, kind of put these patients into. So um, maybe could you share some of your tips for proper assessment and then what goes through your mind when you're indicating uh, patients for surgical treatment? What are some of the your, your highlights or major teaching pearls here? Sure. Uh, well, first and foremost, uh, history is, uh, is, is, is the most important. Um, what I try to do is try to get an idea of why the patient is here to see me now. Because a lot of these patients may have had a deformity for a long period of time. Uh, so the, for the, the most important thing is to figure out why, the, uh, why this person is in, is in front of me today. Uh, so I try to get a good idea of, is it the back pain that's bringing them now? Is it the leg pain that's bringing them now? Uh, is it the fact that they can't stand up straight and can't walk much? Uh, or is it the fact that their deformity is getting worse? Because the treatment uh, and even the surgical treatment can vary a lot based on that. Once I have a good idea of that, I also try to then uh, get other things on the history, such as did you have, did you know that you have scoliosis? Uh, in the past, how long have you known that? What kind of disability this is causing them? 
Uh, and then, you know, are they having any kind of neurological symptoms from this? And what are the treatments or surgeries they've had? So that gives me a good idea of, uh, number one, what the patient's main problem is. And second, how they may have gotten that problem. Once I'm done that, the second part is, is physical examination. It's extremely important, especially in patients with spinal deformity, that we look at their uh, body with them appropriately disrobed. So for males coming to my clinic, we'll have them wear shorts uh, and we'll have them stand upright. Uh, so their uh, hips and knees are as extended as possible for me to get a good assessment of their full deformity. Uh, and then for females, uh, we will have them put a gown or, or, or something to cover their uh, chest. Uh, but at the same time, we still wanna be able to look at uh, uh, you know, most of the deformity as much as we can. And so that's key. Um, the uh, uh, once I have a good idea of what the deformity is and then how the patient is also compensating in regards to the deformity, right? So uh, oftentimes patients who can't stand up straight will make it look like they're standing up straight by bending their hips and knees. And so again, it's key to have them appropriately disrobed so that you can look at their knees to see if they're compensating there or not. Once I know what the deformity is like, the next thing for me to assess is, well, how flexible is this? So they'll have patients bend laterally from side to side, uh, even forward and sometimes a little bit backwards. But then I have them lay down supine and prone on the examination table to see how this deformity corrects as uh, they take gravity out of the equation. Uh, there are going to be patients who, even if you lay them down, the deformity does not change at all, in which case you know uh, this is a really stiff deformity. And on the other hand, there are patients who look extremely bad in terms of their spinal deformity when they stand up. But as soon as you lie them down, it looks like they have a normal spine. So that shows that the, the deformity is extremely flexible, but at the same time, these are the people who may be even more symptomatic, but it, because it also shows instability. So that gives me a good idea of their deformity. Then the regular stuff, you wanna assess their gait, you wanna do a full neurological examination, and peripheral vascular stuff, you wanna examine their hips and knees for contractures, and you wanna check their legs for leg length discrepancy. Uh, so once I'm done my history, physical, the third thing is radiographic evaluation. Radiographic evaluation, uh, at our hospital, what we do is basically a full body AP and lateral, um, which gives us a good assessment of what the spine is doing and what the rest of the body is doing to compensate for the spine. But for those who don't have those full body imaging, at the very least, you want to have scoliosis x-rays that cover the auditory meatus approximately all the way to the femoral heads or even the lesser, uh, the, the lesser trochanters distal. So at least you get a good look at the spine. Uh, we get uh, flexibility films as well. Uh, what that means is that we'll typically get the patients to obviously stand up and get the x-ray, but then we'll have them lie down and get AP and lateral as well to see again how flexible is that deformity so that we can plan accordingly. Uh, CT scans are important in the assessment because the CT scan is gonna show me um, a few uh, different things. Number one, it's going to show me how big their pedicles are, so I know what I can use to anchor my screws. Uh, it's going to show me uh, if the patients already have had a congenital or surgically induced fusions at certain levels, so I know how to deal with them. And then for patients who've had previous surgeries, it also shows me where the defects are, how I need to be careful to avoid that. And then MRI scan for most spine pathologies will get to see, especially for patients who have leg pain, to try to understand uh, where the compression on the nerves may be that's causing their symptoms. So that's the assessment part. Uh, uh, for patients with really severe deformity, 
Uh, I will also sometimes get a 3D reconstructed printed model uh, off their spine to really study it carefully um, and then to see how we can treat that. Uh, indications uh, are kind of judged case by case, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, number one, for patients who are coming in with pain, uh, the indication really is, well, uh, how bad is their pain and how it's affecting their life? And can we treat it with non-operative methods? And those who fail that, then they're going to surgery. And as far as patients who come in with severe, uh, with, with worsening deformity, uh, well, you know, there the indication is, well, how bad is this deformity? How has this, this been progressing with time? And how is this really impacting the patient? And like I said, there are many different categories uh, of where these uh, deformities uh, can exist or, or the categories of patients that have the deformity. So it's somewhat individualized, but those are the main principles um, of how I decide which patients are going to get surgery. So what are, you know, once you decide patients need to have surgery, what are the biggest challenges that you face as a surgeon managing these patients? And then what are the keys to success uh, with surgical management? Um, is it, um, and are the issues more mechanical? Or are they more biologic? What are the biggest challenges? And, um, you know, what would you give as your pearls for, for having good outcomes with these patients? So I think I'll divide them into two different bundles. We'll talk about the keys to success and then we'll talk about the challenges. Um, and then as far as, so in the key to success, part of it is, is the evaluation that we talked about. The, the clinical history, the physical stuff and the radiography, because that gives you a good idea of why the patient is here, what the deformity is, how flexible this is, and then you can decide on what type of surgery they need. Because, for example, if someone comes in uh, to see me with purely leg pain, even if they have a big scoliosis up top, and I determine based on my examination that their pain is really coming from, let's say, a herniated disc at L5-S1 with everything that's being normal, that patient may not need a big deformity surgery. That patient may just need a simple discectomy. On the other hand, someone comes in and the most of the problem is really related to the deformity itself uh, causing pain even though they have leg pain, but it could be that the deformity itself is the one that's causing the collapse and that's causing the leg pain. There I know that I may have to address the deformity even though they just have leg pain. So the number one key to success is to figure out really what's the source of this patient's problem so that you can do the appropriate surgery on them. Second is, if you're doing a big deformity correction surgery, like we said, flexibility is important to figure out because that will dictate what kind of osteotomy they need. Is it just small facet resections that they're going to need for me to make the spine flexible? Or is it something that I may have to do a big three-column osteotomy on to really realign their spine? Uh, so those are key in, in assessments before you even get into surgical management. Um, as far as within the surgery uh, itself is concerned, uh, obviously, you want to have a good execution of surgery, but in addition to that, especially for spinal deformity, there are many different things that we can optimize. So the number one is patient positioning. Uh, for patients who lack lumbar lordosis or who have sagittal imbalance, we try to have them positioned with their, uh, in, in a prone position, obviously, but with the pads positioned uh, kind of further down on their iliac crest and then higher up on their chest so that the gravity also helps us during surgery to create a sagging of their spine and to increase the lordosis as we do our work. Second, the key is exposure and to limit your blood loss during exposure. 
So you want to obviously have a competent assistant on the other side. Other side, if you're doing a big deformity surgery, it may not be highly appropriate to have you know, a first or second year resident on the other side. Uh, if you have a fellow or a senior resident or another attending, uh, even during exposure, that can help speed up things and, and really save on blood loss. Uh, other things we you, know, you do want to do to limit blood loss uh, or redo uh, is we use uh, an IV TXA, uh, actually high dose during our most of our surgeries unless there's a contraindication. And the dose that we use is uh, 50 milligrams per kilograms loading and then five milligrams per kilograms per hour of, of uh, IV maintenance uh, that runs throughout the case. And we've seen a big difference in terms of blood loss for that. Uh, for, uh, for big deformity cases, when you're correcting deformity, uh, neuromonitoring is essential. Uh, so we will have uh, transcranial uh, motor work potentials, as well as sensory potentials and free-running EMGs uh, throughout the case to, to make sure that as we're doing all this work, we are not creating any problems as far as the spinal cord and nerves are concerned. Um, and then the final key is to have a, a, a team who is used to dealing with spine issues. And so, you know, we have uh, anesthesiologists um, and CRNAs who, it's not always the same person, but they're always part of the same team that sees spine patients a lot or that treats spine patients a lot. And that's key because like, they also communicate a lot with the neuromonitoring team to make sure that they're giving the appropriate anesthesia to allow the monitoring team to monitor the patient appropriately. But then on the other side, also keep the patient comfortable and maintain their blood pressure and everything. Um, scrub techs, as well as the circulating nurses, it's very important to have people who are somewhat consistent uh, because the setup is huge for these cases and the amounts of steps are also numerous. So it's important to have someone who can kind of stay uh, with you uh, during this whole surgery and you don't have to ask for things a lot. Um, so that's the key as far as you know, the surgical uh, stuff is concerned. I think after you've already assessed and decided and know what surgery you're doing, as far as challenges are concerned for this type of surgery, you know, I think that the, uh, there are three things. Um, uh, one uh, is uh, the biggest challenge I think that we are facing as far as adult spinal deformity is really proximal junctional kyphosis. And while we have um, a good idea of the many risk factors involved, uh, I think unfortunately as a community, we still don't have a great handle on how to really eliminate this problem. And what proximal junctional kyphosis means is that you have somewhat of a breakdown at the proximal aspect of your construct. So for instance, if I did a surgery on a patient from T10 to S1, uh, the next thing that's gonna be vulnerable is that junction at T9, T10, which they can either have a ligamentous injury over time, uh, or they could have a fracture at T9 or T10, or they just have a slowly uh, building kyphosis at that level. And so that's a problem that's actually quite prevalent. Uh, it's reported somewhere between 20 to 40% of patients if, the, if you follow them for long enough. Um, and, and that's the biggest challenge that our community faces. Uh, some of the risk factors for this uh, include poor bone quality in, in the patients, patients who had uh, severe sagittal malalignment to begin with, and now uh, have uh, a well-aligned spine, uh, we think that their body still wants to go forward and that creates a lot of pressure uh, uh, on the construct. Um, other risk factors include uh, surgical dissection. So if you do extensive dissection, especially the proximal aspect, 
uh, we think we can predispose these patients to getting that. Um, you know, those are some of the, the key things. We, people have also looked at uh, the rigidity of the instrumentation itself. So we try to use uh, rods that transition from a larger diameter to a smaller diameter approximately so as to uh, have a more of a um, uh, softer landing up top. So many factors, we try to uh, optimize all of them, uh, but we still haven't really eliminated this problem. And the other uh, challenge is, is having a, a good and uh, in a high rate of fusion. I think that one, uh, you know, we're at more than 90%, uh, but still we see a good number of people who come in, uh, come back because their spine has infused and they need revisions because of that. And the third challenge, I think it's actually not a surgical one. It's more so to, to educate the public, the physicians, as well as other spine surgeons. Uh, number one, in the existence of spinal deformity and the effects that it has on the patient's quality of life. And second is, is to educate the, the spine surgeons who don't deal with spinal deformity as much uh, is to educate them on the on the presence of this deformity so that they don't create atrogenic deformity, which I think is is the key where we can really reduce that that the third category that I talked about, so that we are not creating deformity, and so yeah, at least we reduce that number there. Yeah, I think that's um, you know, there's a lot of uh, important points there for uh, those of us who see these only occasionally. And um, I think you shared a lot of uh, important technical tips without getting too technical. Um, but I think stuff most of us can, um, can relate to and learn from. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think the title of the podcast is uh, appropriate, uh, Adult Spinal Deformity Decision Making, because this is anything but uh, cookie cutter surgery. I mean, there's a lot of thought process and decision making that goes into everything from uh, the initial assessment all the way to uh, the surgical management. And um, I think that was great. You know, we are about out of time. Um, so I wanted to thank you, uh, Zishan, for coming on the podcast. Uh, that was great stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doc. It was my pleasure.